The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So here's the second part of Week of the Bomb, following on the uh, episode from a few days ago. Here are the voices of those scientists and politicians who admit the horror of the atomic bomb, but who saw it as unavoidable, who felt caught up and even powerless in the equally inevitable march of scientific discovery, and even those who think that such a horrible weapon would actually put an end to war altogether. I guess I can start with that last point first. Uh, It does set the context a little bit, and I'll just read, uh, before I get to the quotations, I'll just read part of uh, another essay of mine, and this is about uh, the use of uh, poison gas in uh, World War I. Uh, According to one section of the Hague Declarations of 1899 concerning asphyxiating gases, Many countries, including the various European nations that eventually came against one another in World War I, agreed to ban projectiles, the sole object of which is the diffusion of asphyxiating or deleterious gases. Nevertheless, in 1914, the French became the first to ignore this declaration, using tear gas and rifled grenades against the Germans. A few months later, in early 1915, the Germans used tear gas and artillery shells against the Russians, although the weather was too cold for the gas to be effective. On April 22nd, the Germans used chlorine gas against the British and French forces at Ypres, doing so more, quote, successfully than their previous attempt with tear gas. And since the success of gas warfare depended almost exclusively on which way the wind was blowing, quite literally. The horrified Germans who came upon their poisoned enemies were themselves worried about catching up to the cloud. Richard Rhodes describes the scene at Ypres. A greenish-yellow cloud hissed from nozzles and drifted on the wind across no man's land. It blanketed the ground, flowed in craters, over the rotting bodies of the dead, through the wide brambles of barbed wire, drifted them across the sandbagged allied parapets and on the trench walls past the fire steps, filled the trenches, found dugouts and deep shelters, and the men who breathed it screamed in pain and choked. It was chlorine gas, caustic and asphyxiating. It smelled as chlorine smells and burned as chlorine burns. Masses of Africans and Canadians stumbled back in retreat, Other masses, surprised and utterly uncomprehending, staggered out of the trenches into no man's land. Men clawed at their throats, stuffed their mouths with shirt tails or scarves, tore the dirt with their bare hands, and buried their faces in the earth. They writhed in agony, ten thousand of them, serious casualties, and five thousand others died. Entire divisions abandoned the line, which I suppose was the point. Uh, end quote from Richard Rhodes. 
uh, Fritz Haber, a German chemist and winner of the 1918 Nobel Prize for his research in the production of fertilizers, is better known for his work in developing chemical weapons of this kind. Only 10 days after this first chlorine attack, to which Haber's work contributed, his wife, also a chemist and the first woman to earn a PhD from the University of Breslau, committed suicide over her objections to her husband's work. A colleague recalled Haber's justification for this work. Quote, he explained to me that the Western fronts, which were all bogged down, could be got moving again only by means of new weapons. One of the weapons contemplated was poison gas. When I objected that this was a mode of warfare violating the Hague Convention, he said that the French had already started it, though not to much effect, by using rifled ammunition filled with gas. Besides, it was a way of saving countless lives if it meant that the war could be brought to an end sooner." End quote. This rationalization, which recommended, in other words, to let a good number of soldiers die immediately, rather than scores more in continued stalemate in the trenches, was used just as ridiculously before and after World War I. After the Civil War, in which the machine gun bearing his name had been put to use, Richard J. Gatling recalled, quote, It occurred to me that if I could invent a machine, a gun, which could, by its rapidity of fire, enable one man to do as much battle duty as a hundred, that it would, to a large extent, supersede the necessity of large armies, and consequently exposure to battle and disease would be greatly diminished. And a version of this excuse was also used from the 1940s onward by the scientists who developed the atomic and hydrogen bombs. J. Robert Oppenheimer, for one, was heard to say that, quote, the atomic bomb is so terrible a weapon that war is now impossible, end quote. All of them, of course, were wrong, and nowadays it is hard to see how educated men could honestly believe such nonsense. Using machine guns on human beings quickly became acceptable in war, the only reduction in large armies falling to those on the other side of the gun, and the invention of atomic weapons, rather than abolishing war, has merely made everything up to their use acceptable. And that comes from my essay, Blindness, War, and History, uh, published in the Conco River Review in the fall of 2014. I'll put a link up to that later. But I think that's worth uh, quoting. Again, not to say that, uh, uh, that, that I'm against the use of atomic weapons or the development of them, but just to show that the, uh, the reasons usually given um, seem a little silly to me, and they have a long pedigree in the past. To get back to the scientists now, uh, the first, the first time we will have heard from Robert Oppenheimer, he said, it is a profound and necessary truth that the deep things in science are not found because they are useful. They are found because it was possible to find them. And of course, reading any of the books I mentioned in uh, the post description, where I've gathered these quotes from, um, the idea of splitting the atom uh, was found because it could be found. 
And only later uh, was the idea of using that energy in a weapon uh, even considered. Although I'm pretty sure, I think Oppenheimer says that uh, he gave a lecture about uh, he gave a lecture about being able to split the atom and the energy it could produce, and within uh, a very short time after that lecture, one of his students had already calculated the uh, the crater that could be made uh, were this put to weaponized use. Here is physicist Carl F. von Weizsäcker, who worked in the German equivalent of the Manhattan Project, and he said. To a person finding himself at the beginning of an era, its simple, simple fundamental structures may become visible like a distant landscape and a flash of a single stroke of lightning. At that time, in 1939, we were faced with a very simple logic. Wars waged with atomic bombs as regularly recurring events, that is to say, nuclear wars as institutions, do not seem reconcilable with the survival of the participating nations. But the atom bomb exists. It exists in the minds of some men. According to the historically known logic of armaments and power systems, it will soon make its physical appearance. If that is so, then the participating nations, and ultimately mankind itself, can only survive if war as an institution is abolished. And there you get the uh, the ridiculous bit at the end. Um, it will soon make its physical appearance is the truth, and that's the unavoidable part. Uh, the, the idea of war being as an institution being abolished is not. <laughs> uh, physicist Leo Szilard in 1939, we realized that should atomic weapons be developed, no two nations would be able to live in peace with each other unless their military forces were controlled by a common higher authority. We expected these controls, if they were effective enough to abolish atomic warfare, would be effective enough to abolish also all other forms of war. This hope was almost as strong a spur to our endeavors as was our fear of becoming the victims of the enemy's atomic bombings. And Leo Zillard, by the way, is sort of the hero of Richard Rhodes' book, uh, on the history of the atomic bomb. He is the one who uh, wrote the letter that I believe Einstein signed uh, and gave it to Roosevelt, letting him know that such a thing was even possible and uh, had the earliest instance of what all of this could bring about in the future. The British chemist and physicist Francis Aston in a 1936 lecture said, there are those about us who say that such research should be stopped by law, alleging that man's destructive powers are already large enough. So, no doubt, the more elderly and ape-like of our prehistoric ancestors objected to the use of newly discovered agency, of that newly discovered agency, namely fire. Personally, I think there is no doubt that subatomic energy is all around us, and that one day man will release, it, release and control its almost infinite power. We cannot prevent him from doing so, and can only hope he will not use it exclusively in blowing up his next-door neighbor. That seems to be the most realistic one so far. Uh, and that's basically my point, too, at, at the end of all of this, 
is that uh, you set people down the road and there is no way to, to prevent them from using it for horrible ends. And so it almost becomes inevitable that the horrible ends be constructed even if they are hardly ever used. Uh, this is from the MAUD, the MAUD report, the Military Application of Uranium Detonation, a British committee initiated before they backed the American Manhattan Project, and this report says, in spite of this very large expenditure, we consider that the destructive effect, both material and moral, is so great that every effort should be made to produce bombs of this kind. The material for the first bomb could be ready by the end of 1943. Even if the war should end before the bombs are ready, the effort would not be wasted, except in the unlikely event of complete disarmament, since no nation would dare to risk being caught without a weapon of such destructive capabilities. And here is Henry Stimson, believing that the bomb should be thought of, quote, not just as a new weapon merely, but as a revolutionary change in the relations of man to the universe, end quote, and that it, and that it was, quote, a Frankenstein which would eat us up and went far beyond the needs of the present war. Frankenstein is another good way of thinking about it. Uh, it expands out and out and out and uh, eats up more time and energy and conscience than anyone could have ever expected. After all, I am doing this now 80 years later, uh, and I don't even think uh, more than 100 people will hear this uh, for a long time, but I still feel the need to do it. It eats away at the mind once the mind latches onto it. And that's just me talking. I can't imagine what, uh, how it ate away at the minds of the scientists. One of which was, here we are, physicist Robert Wilson on why he continued work on the atomic bomb after Germany had surrendered. And he says, it was to be the end of war as we knew it. And this was the promise that was made. That is why I could continue on that project. And if you happen to watch um, John Elsa's documentary, The Day After Trinity, which uh, will be linked to again in this post description, you will see Robert Wilson in the mid to late 70s, um, horrified by uh, the work that he did in uh, bringing the bomb to reality, but still in this case, uh, able to justify it, even if it turns out his justifications were incorrect. Um, you simply can't make a promise that such a weapon will be the end of war. He's a wonderful presence in that documentary uh, about how conflicted all of this is, how difficult it is. And here is President Harry Truman looking back. We regarded the matter of dropping the atomic bomb as exceedingly important. We had just gone through a bitter experience at Okinawa, which was the last major island campaign, when the Americans lost more than 12,500 men killed and missing, and the Japanese more than 100,000 killed in 82 days of fighting. This had been preceded by a number of similar experiences in other Pacific islands north of Australia. The Japanese had demonstrated in each case that they would not surrender and they would fight to the death. It was expected that resistance in Japan, 
with their home ties would be even more severe. We had the 100,000 people killed in Tokyo in one night of conventional bombs, and that was described in the first episode, and it had seemingly no effect whatsoever. It destroyed the Japanese cities, yes, but the, their morale was not affected as far as we could tell, not at all. So it seemed quite necessary, if we could, to shock them into action. We had to end the war. We had to save American lives. And here is Edward Teller, later the father of the hydrogen bomb, in July 1945. He initially opposed using the atomic bomb, but came to this conclusion. This is what he said. First of all, let me say that I have no hope of clearing my conscience. The things we are working on are so terrible that no amount of protesting or fiddling with politics will save our souls. But I am not really convinced of your objections. I do not feel that there is any chance to outlaw any one weapon. If we have a slim chance of survival, it lies in the, it lies in the possibility to get rid of wars. The more decisive a weapon is, the more, the more decisive a weapon is, the more surely it will be used in any real conflict and no agreements will help. Our only hope is in getting the facts of our results before the people. This might help to convince everybody that the next war would be fatal. For this purpose, actual combat use might even be the best thing. And here we are back to uh, physicist Leo Zillard. If peace is organized before the bomb has penetrated the public's mind that the potentialities of atomic bombs are a reality, it will be impossible to have a peace that is based on reality. Making some allowances for the further development of the atomic bomb in the next few years, this weapon will be so powerful that there can be no peace if it is simultaneously in the possession of any two powers unless those two powers are bound by an indissoluble political union. It will hardly be possible to get political action along that line unless high-efficiency atomic bombs have actually been used in this war, and the fact of their destructive power has deeply penetrated the mind of the public. So it is interesting to hear even Zillard uh, saying that, and that does seem to be a general line in my own mind too, that if it hadn't been dropped when it was, uh, it would have been used at some later time after 1945, and its destructive potential would have been learned then. Um, human, human beings being what they are at their worst and most cynical, um, that is the part that seems inevitable. And um, it is very hard to come to any, any other conclusion than that for me. Um, here is President Harry Truman's diaries during the Potsdam Conference of July through August 1945. He says, I thought of Carthage, Baalbek, Jerusalem, Rome, Atlantis, Peking, Babylon, Nineveh, Scipio, Ramses II, Titus, Herman, Sherman, Genghis Khan, Alexander, Darius the Great. But Hitler only destroyed Stalingrad and Berlin. I hope for some sort of peace, but I fear that machines are ahead of morals by some centuries 
and when morals catch up, perhaps there will be no reason for any of it. And here is Winston Churchill summarizing later in his history of the Second World War. To avert a vast indefinite butchery, to bring the war to an end, to give peace to the world, to lay healing hands upon its tortured people by a manifestation of overwhelming power at the cost of a few explosives seemed, after all our toils and perils, a miracle of deliverance. And here is more from Truman's diaries during the Potsdam Conference. He says, We have discovered the most terrible bomb in the history of the world. It may be the fire destruction prophesied in the Euphrates Valley area after Noah and his fabulous ark. The weapon is to be used against Japan between now and August 10th. I have told the Secretary of War, Mr. Stimson, to use it so that military objectives and soldiers and sailors are the target and not women and children. Even if the Japs are savages, ruthless, merciless, and fanatic, we as the leader of the world for the common welfare cannot drop that terrible bomb on the old capital or the new. He and I are in accord. The target will be a purely military one, and we will issue a warning statement asking the Japs to surrender and save lives. I'm sure they will not do that, but we will have given them the chance. It is certainly a good thing for the world that Hitler's crowd or Stalin's did not discover this atomic bomb. It seems to be the most terrible thing ever discovered, but it can be made the most useful. So even, um, assuming that Truman is being honest in his own diaries, even the president, uh, I mean, the, the scientists thought that they had been used and abused and um, lied to, and, uh, and here even the president's wishes were in the end ignored. I'm not aware that, uh, that the Japanese were ever warned about what was happening. Perhaps they were warned about the second bomb in Nagasaki. Um, and they certainly did not try to avoid women and children, unless using Curtis LeMay's uh, justifications that I mentioned in the past episode, um, any any actions by the public to help the Japanese war effort is suddenly made them military targets and then you can basically say well we'll drop that on anybody um, so it's nice to see that even the president's uh, wishes uh, could be sidestepped here is physicist Louis Alvarez after the bombs were dropped he says what regrets I have about being a party to killing and maiming thousands of Japanese civilians this morning are tempered with the hope that this terrible weapon we have created may bring the countries of the world together and prevent further wars. Alfred Nobel thought that his invention of high explosives would have that effect, making wars too terrible, but unfortunately it had just the opposite effect. And here is Secretary of Commerce Henry Wallace. After the bombs were dropped, and it still remained possible to drop even more of them, he says, Truman said he had given orders to stop the atomic bombing. He said, the thought of wiping out another 100,000 people was too horrible. He didn't like the idea of killing, as he said, quote, all those kids. So Truman came around to seeing uh, just who 
uh, the bomb had been dropped on. Here is uh, here's a paragraph from an interim committee scientific panel to the Secretary of War Henry Stimson, delivered on August 17, 1945. It says, and this so this is uh, the bombs were dropped on the sixth and the ninth. So this is uh, about a week or two later. We are convinced that weapons, quantitatively and qualitatively, far more effective than now available, will result from further work on these problems. The development in the years to come of more effective atomic weapons would appear to be a most natural element in any national policy of maintaining our military forces at great strength. Nevertheless, we have grave doubts that this further development of the hydrogen bomb, what it came to be called, can contribute essentially or permanently to the prevention of war. We believe that the safety of this nation, as opposed to its ability to inflict damage on enemy power, can lie wholly or even primarily in its scientific or technical prowess. It can be based only on making future wars impossible. It is our unanimous and urgent recommendation to you that, despite the present incomplete exploitation of technical possibilities in this field, all steps be taken, all necessary international arrangements be made to this one end, which is to make future wars impossible. Uh, even here, it's uh, idealism speaking, um, even in the moment, uh, even if this sounds like Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, there had to have been people realizing that this just would not be so. Here is physicist Arthur Compton a month after the atomic bombs were dropped. He says, we feel that the development of the hydrogen bomb should not be undertaken, primarily because we should prefer defeat in a war to victory obtained at the expense of the enormous human disaster that would be caused by, it, by its determined use. And here is physicist Edward Teller in late 1945 on the powerlessness of scientists in the face of more and more powerful weapons, he says. If the development is possible, it is out of our powers to prevent it. And that's really it, uh, too. Again, this is not to uh, say that Edward Teller is my guy or uh, Curtis LeMay is someone that I admire, but I admire honesty and clarity, and that seems to be both honest and clear. It's also very easy, I realize, to uh, to criticize these people uh, um, from where I am now, having where I will never have to make a decision like this. But it's almost like uh, uh, interviewing a poet after they've written uh, a great poem, ta talking to someone uh, who's just won the World Series. How do you feel? So much of this stuff, there are no words for it. There are no explanations for it. It's even, uh, if you want to talk about uh, criminality, asking uh, uh, someone why they went on a killing spree at some point, there is no talking. There is no explanation for it. There is the rush and the energy and the creativity of certain things, of sports or, or of art. And I'm sure, uh, uh, I'm sure that the killer would say the same thing about the, the acts that he is committing. And um, so part of this is just that there is no language to explain this. Um, and here we are. So physicist Robert Serber, 
on Robert Oppenheimer in late 1945. He says, Oppie says that the atomic bomb is so terrible a weapon that war is now impossible. They will keep coming back to that point. And here's Robert Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer himself in late 1945. It is quite clear that the control of atomic weapons cannot be in itself the unique end of such an operation. The only unique end can be a world that is united and a world in which war will not occur. And here's Oppenheimer in 1946. It did not take atomic weapons to make war terrible. It did not take atomic weapons to make man want peace, a peace that would last. But the atomic bomb was the turn of the screw. It has made the prospect of future war unendurable. It has, it has led us up those last few steps to the mountain pass, and beyond there is a different country. And of course, uh, uh, Oppenheimer um, is the guy who loves John Donne and the Bhagavad Gita and uh, is a very cultured, poetic person. And so he speaks extremely well about these things. Um, but all we have to do uh, with our hindsight, with our uh, knowledge of history, is to think of the Cold War, is to think of uh, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up in a month, um, to see that uh, war has not ended, uh, it has only found a new face, and uh, the only thing that cannot be done is the dropping of atomic bombs or of hydrogen bombs. Uh, President Truman in 1946, who referred to Oppenheimer as a crybaby, he says, uh, a crybaby scientist who came to my office and spent most of his time wringing his hands and telling me they had blood on them because of the discovery of atomic energy. I mean, can you imagine the pressure inside of his head? Uh, physicist Edward Teller in 1946 Nothing that we can plan as a defense for the next generation is likely to be satisfactory. That is, nothing but world union. Or instead of world union, uh, arms race and uh, paranoia, Cold War. President Truman in 1948, I don't think we ought to use this thing unless we absolutely have to. It is a terrible thing to order the use of something like that. Here, he looked at his desk rather reflectively. Something that is so terribly destructive, destructive beyond anything we've ever had. You have got to understand that this is not a military weapon. It is used to wipe out women and children and women and children and unarmed people, and not for military uses. So we have got to treat this differently from rifles and cannon and ordinary things like that. You have got to understand that I have got to think about the effect of such things on international relations. This is no time to be juggling an atom bomb around. And here's Edward Teller, 1948. World government is our only hope for survival. I believe that we should cease to be infatuated with the menace of this fabulous monster, Russia. Our present necessary task of opposing Russia should not cause us to forget that in the long run we cannot win by working against something. We must work for something. We must work for world government. And here is Truman in 1949. 
This isn't just another weapon, not just another bomb. People can make the mistake when they talk about it that way. Dave, we will never use it again if we can possibly help it. And again in 1949, Truman, I am of the opinion we'll never obtain international control of atomic energy. Since we can't obtain international control, we must be strongest in atomic weapons. And that really is the, that really is it, isn't it, right there? The, the image of, uh, uh, what did uh, Jefferson say about slavery? It was like holding, uh, holding a wolf uh, by its mouth, and uh, you, you can't hold on, but you also can't let go. Um, you can't get control of these weapons, and since you can't do that, you have to make more of them. You have to have more of them than anybody. Um, this is uh, humanity in a nutshell, at its worst, uh, but at its worst and most predictable and almost its most inevitable. Here is chemist Glenn Seaborg in 1949 on the development of the hydrogen bomb. He says, although I deplore the prospect of our country putting tremendous effort into this, I must confess that I have been unable to come to the conclusion that we should not. And here are remarks from a 1952 panel on nuclear disarmament, which included Robert Oppenheimer, Vannevar Bush, Alan Dulles, George Bundy and others. It says, fundamentally and in the long run, the problem which is posed by the release of atomic energy is a problem of the ability of the human race to govern itself without war. There is no permanent method of excising atomic energy from our affairs now that men know how it can be released. Even if some reasonably complete international control of atomic energy should be established, knowledge would persist and it is hard to see how there could be any major war in which one side, excuse me, in which one side or another would not eventually make and use atomic bombs. In this respect, the problem of armaments was permanently and drastically altered in 1945. And here is Truman before leaving office in 1953. War today between the Soviet Empire and the free nations might dig the grave not only of our Stalinist opponents, but of our own society, our world as well as theirs. The war of the future would be one in which man could extinguish millions of lives at one blow, demolish the great cities of the world, wipe out the cultural achievements of the past, and destroy the very structure of a civilization that has been slowly and painfully built up through hundreds of generations. Such a war is not a possible policy for rational men. But again, that assumes that policy and governments and history is rational. This is Hartley Rowe, an engineer and member of the General Advisory Committee on the Hydrogen Bomb, speaking in 1954. It was a pretty soul-searching time, and I had rather definite views. I may be an idealist, but I can't see how any people can go from one engine of destruction to another, each of them a thousand times greater in potential destruction, and still retain any normal perspective in regard to their relationships with other countries, and also in relationship with peace. If a commensurate effort had been made to come to some understanding with the nations of the world, we might have avoided this development. 
That's another key as well. That the, that the knowledge we gather uh, from violence skews any normal perspective in regard to our relationship to other countries. Um, and that says nothing about uh, a country's views on uh, culture, race, religion, um, everything else you can possibly throw into the bag. Here is physicist Enrico Fermi and I.I. Rabi in the 1954 GAC report. Necessarily, such weapons go far beyond any military objective and enters the range of very great natural catastrophes. By its very nature, it cannot be confined to a military objective, but becomes a weapon which in practical effect is almost one of genocide. It is clear that the use of such a weapon cannot be justified on any ethical ground, which gives a human being a certain individuality and dignity, even if he appears to be a resident of any enemy country. It is evident to, evident to us that this would be the best view of peoples in other countries. Its use would put the United States in a bad moral position relative to the peoples of the world. Any post-war situation resulting from such a weapon would leave unresolvable enmities for generations. A desirable peace cannot come from such an inhuman application of force. The post-war problems would dwarf the problems which confront us at present. The fact that no limits exist to the destructiveness of this weapon makes its very existence and the knowledge of its construction a danger to humanity as a whole. It is necessarily an evil thing considered in any light. For these reasons, we believe it important for the President of the United States to tell the American people and the world that we think it is wrong on fundamental ethical principles to initiate the development of such a weapon. Now, that makes me go back to the very last quote. Uh, what, what other things other than weapons can keep countries, uh, societies, uh, cultures, uh, religions, races, creeds, philosophies? Uh, what things other than weapons can keep them from having a normal perspective in regard to their relationships with other countries and also in a relationship with other peoples and with peace. And it seems to me that uh, if you put uh, slavery, if you put uh, the tenets of uh, racism or uh, religious hatred, um, if you basically put on the table anything that human beings have ever thought of that allow them to think of their neighbors as less than human than they are, and eventually allows them to say, well, those neighbors are less than human and we can kill them. Um, that is the thing uh, beyond a weapon which makes its very existence and the knowledge of its construction a danger to humanity as a whole. It is necessarily an evil thing considered in any light. For these reasons, we believe it is important for the president, so on and so forth. Uh, we think it is wrong on fundamental ethical principles to do what? To initiate the development of a weapon, to continue to think in ways that allow us to think 
uh, and believe things about people who are different than us, um, that seems to be at root as well. So that the, the problem of the bomb, even though it's, uh, as it says, it can, it is so huge that by its practical effect, it is basically a weapon of genocide. The thoughts and the power behind it um, are lurking everywhere. Uh, I only have to think about the, the election that just passed in the United States, where uh, half the country despises the other half of the country. Half the country believes one thing about uh, any number of things, and the other half believes something else, and at some point there is simple virile hatred for them. Um, this is what I mean, that this whole thing seems, it is about the bomb, but the bomb is beside the point. It is something deeply ingrained in humanity. Um, what does uh, Cormac McCarthy say in uh, See if I can actually find it here. What does Cormac McCarthy say in Blood Meridian? Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, so I might not be able to find it. Of course, I can't find it now. Um, oh, he does. Yes, this this again is from my essay. <coughs> blindness, war, and history. Uh, it makes no difference what men think of war, war endures. As well ask a man what they think of a stone. War was always here. Before man was, war waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and the way it will be. Uh, that way and not some other way. Uh, this is where human beings have always been, no matter no matter what our civilizing forces have tried to pretend otherwise. Here is Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, 1954, responding to criticism from South Korea at his deciding not to use the atomic bomb on North Korea. This is what Eisenhower says. There is no disposition in America at any time to belittle the Republic of Korea. But when you say that we should deliberately plunge into war, let me tell you that if war comes, it will be horrible. Atomic war will destroy civilization. It will destroy our cities. There will be millions of people dead. War today is unthinkable with the weapons which we have at our command. If the Kremlin and Washington ever lock up in a war, the results are too horrible to contemplate. I can't even imagine them. But we must keep strong. I assure you that we that we think about these things continuously and as seriously as you do. The kind of war that I am talking about, if carried out, would not save a democracy. Civilization would be ruined, and those nations and persons that survived would have to have strong dictators over them, just to feed the people who are left. That is why we are opposed to war. And here, the last quote for tonight, are two from the physicist Niels Bohr, writing in the late 1950s, he says, We are in a completely new situation that cannot be resolved by war. Only international cooperation, exchange of scientific discoveries, internationalization of the achievements of science, 
can lead us to the elimination of wars and thus the elimination of the very necessity to use the atomic bomb. This is the only rightful method of defense. And in many ways, all of these quotations are um, some version of uh, uh, people uh, almost interpreting religious texts thousands of years after they were written, um, after they have had a theology already drummed into their heads about them. Um, you have to justify it after the fact, and they're doing the best they can, but it is simply not possible. Um, I almost think here of uh, King Lear out on the heath uh, in the thunderstorm uh, with, with the fool drumming on with his riddles. Uh, there is a, uh, a great violence at the heart of everything that we do. And I don't think that there is any help in trying to deny that. And unless we come up with some better solutions, I don't think that there is even a point in trying to remedy it. Uh, it almost seems important to simply recognize it. Uh, so for the next episode on this, We'll focus again on the scientists and why other reasons they gave for why they decided to keep going with the problem of, of getting the atomic bomb made. So until then. Any comments? or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.